some evidence from uh, early church history on that, and spent a lot of time with Peter. So as we read Mark, uh, this is a first-hand account of Peter's experience, Peter's memories, and uh, as well as other sources, I'm sure, that Mark consulted. See, Mark, more than likely, never met Jesus. Uh, it's most probable that he never did. Uh, he didn't live in Jerusalem area. Uh, he wasn't from there. And, and he came to Christ subsequently to uh, the death and burial and resurrection of Christ. So uh, this is his memories from his awesome investment with the apostle Peter. So we come now to a really uh, difficult story. It's, uh, uh, it's the death of John the Baptist. And yes, I'm calling it the Lord of the Dance uh, on purpose. Uh, the Lord is still the Lord all the time, even when the outcome is grisly and uh, not what we had hoped for at all. And this again, we have a look at how often the prophets of God are treated very poorly on this earth. Uh, they are persecuted. Uh, a lot of times God's retirement plan is a very pointed affair. <laughs> it's a sword. Uh, and uh, you don't, well, didn't have to worry about Social Security after all. <laughs> uh, he, all he's dead. He's beheaded. And this, this you know, it's not unusual. It happened to, uh, let's see, I guess you'd have to say 10 of the 12 disciples of Jesus, uh, the best evidence we have, they all ended in the same sort of execution. Uh, the exceptions are... Judas, who committed suicide, then you have to bring, well, I'm getting into all kinds of different things here. <laughs> it didn't intend to go off this way, but it shows you that working for God is not necessarily safe. Uh, and, and the issue at hand is John the Baptist speaks the truth, holds uh, people accountable to the truth just through words. He's just preaching, just talking. And the people who hear and who are convicted of their sin, they, what do they do? Do they hate the message? Yeah. But they hate the messenger too. And they have this broken theory that, well, if we get rid of the messenger, the message will go away. Well, that does not happen with God because the message is God and God's word and so you can do whatever you want with the messenger, God's word. How long does it abide? It goes from seven to zero. <laughs> it's infinity and beyond. It really is. It says the word of the Lord abides forever. You know, you can behead all the prophets you want. Uh, and actually, at the end of the day, they'll say, thank you very much. <laughs> Uh, life in that pit wasn't all that great. <laughs> and at the end of the day, you cannot stop the Word of God. So honestly, that's what makes the Word of God so exciting, so awesome, so pulsating, so real, so penetrating, so challenging, and yet comforting and wonderful all at the same time. So uh, let's look at this story and see where uh, what the Lord teaches uh, all of us from it. Um, let me open with just a word of prayer. Oh, Father, 
as we read this story from Mark chapter 6, our prayer request is that, first of all, you would be glorified. You are the Lord of all. Lord Sabaoth, your name, the Lord of hosts. And you are the sovereign God who rules. Your word tells us that you work all things after the counsel. You have predetermined in your counsel how all things will occur. There's no chance. There's no mistake. There's no tragedy. From your point of view, it's your will. And this is hard for us to understand, O Lord. So please encourage us with your word today. Teach us what you want us to learn. And thank you for your word as well. And we always pray through Jesus, who your word declares to be the word, the communication from you. Amen. So verse 14, let's stop before we go into that. The context is, just a brief context, is Jesus has been in Galilee for quite a while, and he's been doing two or three things mainly. One is teaching, and people are mixed reviews on that. Sometimes they love it, sometimes they hate him. Uh, And then he's been doing marvels, he's been doing miracles, And actually, just recently, he literally raised a a girl from death to life. He raised her back to life. She was the daughter of one of the leaders of the synagogue there, which is the Jewish church, for lack of a better word. Um, Jairus' daughter. And she's a girl, 12 years old, and she's dead. And he raised her to life. He's been casting out demons, doing marvelous, huge things that raise his reputation and anticipation and expectations very, very high. And then, last week, we looked briefly at this, uh, look at verse 7. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two. So there were, uh, he, Jesus has been traveling around preaching and doing miracles, and now he sends out six teams, six teams of ministers, two by two, to go out and do the same thing, to preach in the villages more and more, and to do miracles. And they do miracles. Uh, See verse 13? And they cast out many demons. Now, honestly, this should, to me, it always gives me pause. They're in in Israel. These people are mainly God-fearing, synagogue-going people who would say, I love the Bible, I love God. And yet, in, in that culture, there's a ton of demons out there. We have to ask, are we just blind to the demonology in our midst? I think that's probably the right answer. I think there's plenty of demons still today, but we have uh, scientifically defined them out of the picture to our loss and probably to our great damage. But anyway, so these six teams have... Notice the language in verse 13. Cast out many, not not two or three, 
but a whole bunch. And then, uh, honestly, this is like I told you when I read this yesterday, last week, it seems like yesterday to me. <laughs> then he anointed with oil many. That's, that's not found in any other uh, of the Gospels. These teams went out and had oil, olive oil, and they were anointing people with oil. James tells us in his letter, is anyone sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them anoint the sick with oil in the name of the Lord. And if they have sins, they will be forgiven and they will be healed. And that's what happened. And many were sick. Many who were sick were healed, it says. So what does this do? It raises the fame of Jesus. It raises the glory of Jesus. It raises everybody's expectation, anticipation of who Jesus is. We, we want to make the name of Jesus great. This should be our goal, to bring glory to Jesus. I want to tell you how great Jesus is. Christ is all I have. Hallelujah! He, you know, he saved my sinful soul. He forgave me. I don't I don't cower in fear at the presence of God. Why? Because Jesus paid it all. Some of the best words in Scripture are, he is able to save to the uttermost those who trust in him or something like that. Uh, <laughs> through faith, we're saved completely. This is so glorious. This is the cutting gospel, right? We don't, we don't have to pray to a 500 or... 400,000 different saints and take little scraps of cloth and tie them around our neck and go, oh, I hope I'm saved. No, have confidence in Jesus. <laughs> you know, he's amazing. <laughs> he's the son of God. He's the son of man. He died for our sins and we make him great. We make him great. So what should that produce? Well, you would think logically it would produce some fans, people who like Jesus with you, and it will. But what also does it produce? Opposition. And example, uh, China, uh, and actually Russia, same thing's happening you know, to the free church in Russia that's preaching the gospel. The uh, Orthodox Church is suppressing, connecting with the government, suppressing the free proclamation of the gospel in China. They have a state church, but the government monitors what is said from the pulpit. Pastors are not allowed to preach the word. They preach the word as edited by the Communist Party. Uh, you know, so we should be thankful for our freedom, right? But what I'm saying is, as we make Jesus great, we will have opposition. People don't like that, and that's exactly where we are in this context. See, verse 14. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Now this is going to drive Herod to the edge of, of insanity, really, in this text. The name of Jesus had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Okay, so Mark writes this out as some people are saying at this point in history. Boy, it looks like 
Jesus is doing some amazing stuff. Maybe he's John the Baptist raised from the dead. That's why he has these miracle powers, because he's raised from the dead. What's going on here? And Mark realizes, wait a minute, I haven't told you the back, background. Let me, let me tell you the background. What, what, what happened to John? We didn't know he was dead yet. We're going to get to that. But others said, he is Elijah. Of course, Elijah and John the Baptist are commingled in, in their minds too, because in some sense, John the Baptist is Elijah. And when Elijah was on the earth, he did lots of miracles. He raised little dead girls to life again, for example. So they're saying, this Jesus is Elijah. And others said, well, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of, of old. But when Herod heard it, look at verse 16. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. What? Now comes the explanation, the sordid story. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying, notice the language there, he said it over and over again. Uh, he didn't just say it once. And somehow Herod and Herodias kept hearing this, probably indirectly, just through the rumor mill, the grapevine, but possibly directly too, we don't know. And okay, so for John had been saying uh, to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So you can see there's some uh, uh, immorality that went on here. Herod decided that, you know, they met at parties or whatever, and he fell in love with his brother's wife, Herodias. Yes, it's the same, uh, you know, name, Herod and Herodias. Uh, the, the family tree of Herod the Great is one of history's weirdest things you ever want to see. Uh, there's, I think he had altogether like 12 wives. There's many Herods in the family. Uh, a lot of crossbreeding and intermarriage, and it's a big mess. Uh, I'm not here to explain it or defend it, but, but there it is. And here is another example of it. And this is Herod Antipas, uh, one of Herod the Great's sons, whom we're talking about here. Um, for it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. This is according to Jewish law, the Old Testament law. It was wrong, it was immoral to marry your brother's wife. And see, Herod, that's a long story, but Herod is partially Jewish. His mother was Samaritan. And the Samaritans are partially Jewish. So he was partially Jewish and acting as if he was admiring the law of Moses, the law of God. So it made sense for John to point out that you're, you're a hypocrite. You're not admiring the law of Moses. You're living against it. And uh, your, your immorality here, admiring the, this woman Herodias, your sister-in-law, is just all wrong. It's just sick. Okay. Look at verse 19, though. Here is actually the, now you get to the power in the situation. And Herodias had a grudge against him. 
It's against John the Baptist. And wanted to put him to death, but she could not. Again, I don't like the message. Let's kill the messenger. That'll get rid of the message. No. Okay, we'll talk about that later. But she could not. Why? For Herod feared John. He actually had a respect for John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man. And he kept him safe. How did he do that? By arresting him and throwing him into a dungeon. Um, Herod was a, a tetrarch, which means he ruled one-fourth of his father's kingdom. And he had Galilee. That's why all this excitement up in Galilee has got his attention. And he also had the eastern side of the Jordan going down to the Dead Sea. And he had a fortress, Makurios, or Makuros, or something like that. Fortress on the Dead Sea. Perhaps it had some beautiful views. I don't know. Uh, But there was a pit, a dungeon there, and he put John the Baptist in that dungeon. That is reference to Josephus. Uh, That's how we're pretty sure that's the truth. Uh, that's where Herod Antipas was keeping John the Baptist in this prison. And notice, out of respect, he could have killed him, but he didn't want to. He wanted to keep him safe. Uh, And look at what it says there in verse 20. When he heard him, this is when Herod heard John, he was greatly perplexed. Now, I've had that privilege or, or honor or even concern or... Sadness. Uh, we've had folks come to church here, and they might they might even be a part of us for like six months, or and and they're just perplexed. Like it's just like, you know, like almost I believe, I want to believe. It's interesting. I, I think it's amazing, but I I'm not going to believe. I I will not believe, and they fall away. We've seen this over and over again. Uh, this is a commonality of unbelievers. They're interested. You know, they hear the word. They might even be excited about the word. But when it comes to submitting to God, not there. No, I can't. I don't want to go that far. I, I want to do this on my own timetable, Lord. I'll let you know when I'm ready to obey you. <laughs> That's another. <laughs> it doesn't work, okay? It doesn't work because what happens oftentimes is God just takes the word away from you then. You, you lose your opportunity. Don't lose the opportunity. Uh, and here is Herod. It, it says he was perplexed, confused. He was greatly perplexed, and yet, yet he heard him gladly. I, I like to hear John preach, even though he's preaching against my own lifestyle. You know, somehow it's amazing. He's hearing the word of God. He's being enriched by the word of God, but he's not submitting to God. He's not fully, fully believing and trusting and fully repenting to turn over to the Lord, the Lord of the dance. Okay, so that's a little background, right? Now verse 21. But an opportunity came. The Greek word here is just the, a, a good time. A, the right time came. And you'll find out here that Herodias has been scheming and hoping. What's the right time for? For Herodias's grudge, her resentment. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, 
gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders. Now these are high-ranking officials and the leading men of Galilee. By the way, it's most probable this happened down by the Dead Sea in the fortress. Uh, his, you know, his special, amazing sort of vacation spot, fortress down by the Dead Sea uh, where John the Baptist is in the basement. And, he, and, another, and it takes like two days to get there from, from Galilee. It's a long trip. You know, they don't you know, hop, hop the uh, high-speed train or anything. <laughs> it's slow moving, slow moving. But this is a destination party. This is a pull out the stops. It's, it's the party of Herod, the, the party to be. I, I'm going, man. That sounds awesome. The food's going to be great. You know, open bar is everything you could imagine in a birthday party. Uh, by the way, it's interesting as I study this. Uh, generally, the Jews backed away from birthday parties because of this. You know, the birthday parties were sordid affairs. You know, where you know the goal is to have a everybody gets drunk party. Uh, not a good scene, not, not a place where God's righteousness is upheld and where we're motivated to serve God. So generally, the Jews didn't do much for birthdays uh, in this culture. So here he is. Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for these high people who he thrived on their respect. In many ways, Herod's a tragic figure here. He's, he's a tetrarch. He's not a king. Uh, his power is, you know, questionable. Uh, in fact, it's interesting because in the year 39, Herod went to Rome for the purpose of raising his rank. He wanted to be called king. A lot, popularly, they called him king. He was a tetrarch, not a king. So he went to Rome in 39 to, to you know, petition to become the king, right? And it ended up that he was unemployed after that. <laughs> he lost his job altogether. Uh, so he's a tragic figure uh, and kind of, of uh, ridiculous in a way. It says, for, okay, we're in verse 22. For when Herodias's daughter came in and danced, now this was like planned entertainment. Um, and this is the, the king's stepdaughter. It, it, I mean, it's unlikely this was like, uh, it was not like a striptease. It wasn't, you know, boldly, horribly sensual. I mean, it's the king's daughter, you know. There's a certain amount of respect there for her. And she's actually probably pretty young. In the text, it'll call her girl, I think, three times. That's the same word. Jairus' daughter was a girl. And that girl usually means a, a younger girl. Jairus' daughter was 12. She's a young girl. Um, Hollywood and a lot of artists have led us to think that this was like some sort of massively, overtly sensual uh, dancing. Uh, and I came to think, as I read many commentators, it probably wasn't that. But a drunken crowd of men who've traveled two days to a party, you think they might have been thinking sensual thoughts? Yeah. What, you know, what, what's 
happens in Las Vegas stays in Las Vegas. Uh, did I say that the right word? Yeah, that's right, right. Uh, Makuras, the fortress. You know, you're out in a, alone in an isolated place. No one knows what's going on there. It's it, it it's the the you know the hotbed for sin and immorality. So she came, comes in and dance. Verse twenty-two dances. For when Herodias' daughter, she's not named in the Bible. Josephus says her name was Salome, maybe so. Some older versions of the Greek text say her name was Herodias. That's not unbelievable either. Like I said, the Herod's family used, reused a lot of names. So you might name your daughter Herodias when you are Herodias. Irrelevant really to the story, just some interesting background. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, you know, here's, here's, you know, he's inebriated to some extent. He's full of pride and all the nobles and military commanders, his one, two-star generals are there. He wants to impress these guys. He says out loud, Ask me whatever you wish, and I, I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. Again, kind of tragic because he doesn't really have a kingdom, but uh, half of Galilee, okay. An amazing moment. And by the way, if you are a hard and fast Jewish reader, immediately, anybody think what your mind might go to right here? It's a little hard to see, perhaps, but it would go to Esther. A lot of talk of Esther in this text because her husband, the king, promised her the same thing. She appeared before him boldly, and she pleased him, you know, and he said, whatever you want, up to half my kingdom. It's a contrast, isn't it? How would you use your power and influence? Would you be like Herodias and Herodias' daughter to use this moment of power and influence for evil or for great good like Esther who saved the Jewish nation, uh, saved them alive, saved her, her uh, uncle Mordecai uh, because she heard the promise of her husband, the king, the real king. He was the king, it says, from India all the way over. He was a king in India. Isn't that crazy? I'm talking about the king of Esther, Ahasuerus. Yeah, couldn't he have like an easy name to pronounce, like Bob? But no, he's got to go with Ahasuerus. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> California complaining. I don't like your name. If I can't shorten it to one syllable. <laughs> uh, okay, back to the text. Up to half my kingdom. There's this, whoa, what a moment. Power. Herodias' plan seems to have worked way better than she ever thought it would happen. And she has this girl trained, this young girl Again, let's say she's 11 or 12 years old. She scampers out, right? It says, and she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. 
John the Baptist. He's in the basement. I, I resented him. Let's have his head. Was that pre-planned for Herodias? Probably. Why doesn't the girl fall over, you know, and, and is like grossed out by this? It's like running the mill. Mama always talks about cutting his head off. <laughs> this isn't the first time she's heard this, right? Uh, no, no, I think she's quite familiar with mom's resentment. Mom probably resented John and talked about it all the time, right? And this girl is uh, a chip off the old block, huh? The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. She's much like her mother uh, because she doesn't say, what, Mom? No, 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 no. I want an ice skating rink, you know? <laughs> no, she agrees, and she, it says, verse 25, and she came in immediately. This is so Mark in his description of this. He remembers Peter saying it just like this. She came in immediately with haste. That's that Greek word, spude, you know, with, with speed. No time to waste. This is urgent. She came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Whew. Wow. She even added a line. The whole platter thing apparently was her idea. Pretty amazing. Wow. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, and remember those military commanders and the local leaders and political folks that he has to keep pleasing, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner. These are like his bodyguards that don't ask questions. They do whatever he wants. He sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. And he went and beheaded him in prison. I know it's gross, but just think of that for John the Baptist, you know. Oh, they're bringing me down. They're going to bring me up to the, I've been hearing all that big party upstairs. Maybe, you know, Herod likes my preaching. Maybe he wants a devotional. <laughs> Every pastor's dream, you know. <laughs> I'm sure they want me to pray. <laughs> No, no, no. When that prison door opened, it was for the very last time for John. They beheaded him right there and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. That's that word, girl, meaning a, a young girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. What kind of a hardened girl can casually hand a head to her mother, but she did. And then when his disciples heard it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. A little foreshadowing of after their crucifixion, the disciples came and took Jesus and laid him in a tomb. Okay, so where do we go with this story? First of all, again, let's be thankful that the Bible is uh, stretches us uh, this, this is why we take the Bible, you know, one story at a time. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not the editor to decide what's best. I let the Holy Spirit decide what we need to hear. 
So given that as a background, the Holy Spirit thinks you and I need to hear something from this text. This is the part of the smorgasbord that we might have skipped over uh, as, as for something that would nourish us, but there's something here the Holy Spirit wants you and I to hear. So let's, let's try to work through this. I've, I've got a simple three-point outline in the next 15 minutes. It's simple, and this is what I'm going to talk about. Herod is a desperate character. Then Herodias is a despicable character. And then finally, I'm going to say God is a daring character. So we got desperate, despicable, and daring. Let's start. Let's talk a little bit more about Herod. First of all, Herod, this desperate, desperate character, he's a kind of a shadow of a man. He's living for the dreams and hopes of other people and pulled this way and that. And uh, he hears that John the Baptist is, I mean, he hears that Jesus is doing wonderful things and his mind immediately goes to this, his mur- he murdered this guy and he's, Herod is tortured by the guy he murdered. Uh, He thinks he must be raised from the dead. The evil thing that I did constantly tortures me. Now, that's not unusual in human experience. Uh, Edgar Allan Poe wrote a book called The Tell-Tale Heart. Um, And the story of that is uh, he's living... I I don't know all the details, uh, so I'll just go real light on the details. He's living with an old man. Could be his dad. I'm not sure. And he just gets sick and tired of the old guy. So he decides to kill him. And he decides to bury him underneath the house. Uh, underneath the floor. He, he carefully makes a place under the floor and buries him down into there. Then the police come to investigate for some reason. And the policeman has a chair right over where the old man is buried. And in the middle of the interview, what does the gentleman hear but the beating of the heart? He starts to hear the heartbeat. It's buried under five feet of soil. Boop, 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 boop. And he starts to think, I know the detective hears it. Why doesn't he acknowledge it? Boop, 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 boop. The, his evil that he thought he buried is haunting him. And it ends up, the uh, gentleman blurts out, you know, confesses <laughs> the murder of the old guy because the tell-tale heart. And also, I just recently had the privilege of going to uh, Shakespeare in Chicago and saw Macbeth. Ever seen Macbeth? Some of you haven't? I'll read the whole thing for you. We have plenty of time. (laughs) No, but it's... Oh, and in Chicago, the the Chicago Theater, uh, it's right out on Navy Pier. They do an amazing rocking good job. In fact, it was so good, we all sort of hated it, you know, because it's a grim story. But the whole point is he has a rival that he doesn't like, and the rival comes to visit him in his home, and he he and his wife decide to murder them in their home, and they're haunted by this, and his actual ghost that comes to visit them. But the idea is the, the evil thing that Herod did comes back to haunt him. He's afraid of the man he murdered. 
One of the commentators made a nice general statement about this. This is Lenski. He says, Unbelief always believes the most unlikely thing and calls it the most reasonable. And the actual fact, utterly unreasonable. And that's what unbelief does to a human being. It, it, it destroys our logical ability. And we believe things that are not true. And we're committed. And we, the truth we hear, that can't be true. That's unreasonable. What I believe is true. You know, that's, theology has a nice technical term for that. It's called the noetic effect of sin. Meaning, the noetic means the brain. Our brains are affected by sin. You don't trust your logic when it contradicts the logic of God. And here's a great example of that. Herod is afraid of the man he murdered. He values his pride over his morality. You know, I, I, I don't want to be moral if I have to do something to my pride. I'm, I can't humble myself and admit I did something wrong. He, he gets carried away at parties. He's a despicable person, uh, desperate. He gets carried away at parties. The king flaunting his wealth and power. And he, he makes an exaggerated promise to his daughter. And here's a, another thing to think about on this desperate, tragical character. He gets pushed, he gets pushed, he gets pushed to do what he knows is wrong. That makes him no king, but a vassal. He's, he's obeying the social pressure and his probably semi-constant nagging of Herodias. Get, get that messenger because the message is unacceptable. All right, now let's, I like this. This is from some play. I'm, I don't even know what, but some these people are in character. This is supposed to be Herod Antipas, and this is supposed to be Herodias. And I, I think they captured something there, okay? Um, and Herodias is a despicable character. And she's, she has a diabolical scheme. Uh, again, this is not unusual in human history. We've heard of Jezebel uh, many times over. Uh, there are pure evil people. And Herodias is this kind of a despicable character. She harbors hatred for a man of God. Why? Why do you hate the man of God? He did his job. Okay. So he did what God wanted him to do. And you hate him. Now, that's a one-off in history. That's never happened before and never since. <laughs> no, my dear friends, this happens all the time. I mean, it happens in local churches. It happens in the big picture in Jesus Christ himself. Why do people hate Jesus? He did the Father's will. She harbors and harbors. It's in her harbor. It, the boat's there constantly, right? She nurses that boat of hatred, keeps it strong, and she's waiting for revenge. She's going to get her revenge. She was really embarrassed. She wouldn't, they wouldn't admit it. They couldn't say, yeah, you're right. This was wrong, and we've left a terrible example to our people. No. And, that, and then she asks what we would call the unthinkable. She's, she's despicable. Her, I, I, you, you want his head cut off? Here's, here's the 
the line on this, I think. When you hear the word of God, you either repent or you try to get rid of the word of God. You either say, yes, it is the word of God, and I want to repent. Oh, Lord God, help me to repent. I submit to the word of God, or you try to get rid of it. You avoid it. You stay away from it. You malign it. You undermine it. You say the word of God doesn't have an effect. It's not true. And that's exactly this Herodias character. And her daughter is as evil as her mother. As I said, here's some just artwork on this is not probably nothing to do with what actually happened but this is supposed to be Herodias's daughter dancing I don't even know why I put that one there I'm sorry but here's here's a young lady with a gruesome head on a platter again not probably similar to the actual image but this is the real artist there's mint Coravaggio has a great artwork on this but it's too graphic for me so I didn't put it up uh, this is the outcome of Herodias's hatred. Her daughter is as evil as her mother. And what a nice, sharp contrast to Esther. Okay, now let's, let's do the daring thing. I'm going to say God is daring. Why, why, why do you say that? Well, this is God's big plan for, for his universe. And Again, the Bible says, it's one of my favorite verses, it's Ephesians 1.11, he works all things after the counsel of his own will. That means nothing happens by a freak accident. And he never goes, oh my goodness, I never anticipated them doing that to John. I, I know it's harsh, but our God is daring. He made a really a challenging plan. <laughs> you know, it's like, hold on to the Roller coaster is the word I'm looking for. You know, it's, it is, it, it's amazing, his plan. We'll never fully understand it. We should humble ourselves and say, Lord, I don't understand this. And believe me, uh, Jesus, we'll see later, he's grieved by this. He doesn't just say, oh, well, it's God's plan. That's the way it goes. Uh, no, no, we grieve, but we, but we can't ever come to the conclusion of, well, wow, that was, you know, evil conquered God that time. no. This is God's plan. God is daring. He demonstrates his providence in difficult ways. Yeah. Difficult ways. You know, ways you, you wouldn't want. You know, my dear daughter, Katrina, born in 1983. Um, she, you know, there were missionaries in Indonesia. They, they worked really hard to get there. It took like three years to build up all the support to get there. And they, they get there, and they have a beautiful baby, Charlotte Cartini, that's her, their third child. She's here today with us. And, and then they have the fourth child, who's David, David Allen Hodges. And David has a serious disease, congenital. Uh, it's called hydrocephaly. He is bra- and his brain is smushed to near nothing in his, in his head. God's providence is difficult. Why, Lord? You know, why? Why would you do this to your missionaries, you know? I mean, Indonesia is so dark. They need the Lord Jesus so much there, oh Lord. But God has a plan. And we hold on to his plan even when it's painful and difficult. We trust him through it. That he, he knows what he's doing. 
God is a daring character. And of course, there's a foreshadowing in this, too, of, of Jesus himself. You know, Jesus will be sacrificed. He will be killed for our salvation. The, this, this same political muck of the balance of Rome and the Jewish culture will be the same weak leadership that ends in the crucifixion of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This leadership will be pushed by evil and by revenge and by pride to crucify Christ, which produces the greatest grace of all time. The most beautiful, wonderful reality of all time is produced by the grimmest, grossest reality of all time. The crucifixion of Jesus who was perfect. John wasn't perfect. He would be the first to admit that. Uh, but Jesus was perfect. He didn't deserve this. And I think really the a bottom line here is I'm coming very close to my final moments of this sermon, maybe, uh, that God is teaching us. Let me ask you this as a question. Do you think we deserve better treatment than Jesus? Do we deserve better? Yeah, we think so, right? Jen admits it. We would surely like it, uh, but, but we don't, do we? We don't deserve better treatment than John or Jesus. This is how, in his love and kindness, in his grace and wonder, and in his daring plan that stretches our ability to understand, we, the little people, don't understand it, oh Lord, but this is the way he works. And he, he doesn't ex expect us to expect better treatment than Jesus himself. Okay, let me put some handles on this. This is kind of where I've been going in the last 40 minutes. Maybe it was 35. Am I being pushed to do what I know is wrong? Is, are there forces in my life? Watch the forces in our life. Watch the... Uh, ganging up on us, at, maybe at work or in the, in the family. Uh, watch it. Be careful not to be pushed. Have the backbone to say, no, I will not do this evil thing. How about this? When confronted by the word, do we resent or repent? Those are the two options. I resent that. Or do we repent? Now, let's be honest, I go through this uh, many times a day <laughs> where I, I have a period of resentment. <laughs> I'll sometimes even get angry and, you know, and then, and then praise God, the Holy Spirit. Okay, I'm going to keep working on you. And then he brings me to the point where, okay, you're right. <laughs> I've got to repent of this thing. I want to repent now. But, but see, the difference for Herodias is she, she had hatred in her harbor. Imagine that little ship there. And she kept it, nursed it, kept it, loved it. She loved her resentment. And she was fooled by evil itself into thinking that if I kill the messenger, I kill the message. And you will never kill the message. You will never kill the message. So our opportunity is now to repent. When confronted by the word, do we resent or repent? Fourthly, no, no, thirdly, I have four things. This is thirdly. Ah, 
And the whistle says, it's time for the third point. Are we using our power and influence for good? This is directly to the Herodias in us. Herodias has power and influence. Is she going to use it for good or is she going to use it for evil? She's using it for evil. Let's ask ourselves, if we're putting effort into this thing, is, is it for good? Is this for God's glory? Uh, will this really produce what God wants us to be producing? Uh, watch our use of everybody. All of us have power and influence. How are we using it? And then finally, getting to the sovereignty issue. Are we trusting our sovereign God even through the difficult outworkings of his plan? Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your kindness and grace for setting this table for us to dine on today. Your precious holy word. We thank you for the text. We thank you for Mark's faithfulness in it. And Lord, through the power of your Holy Spirit, you preserved it. And here in 2018 and the other half of the world in Monterey, California, we can come close to your word and hear it. Oh, Lord, please give us grace not to re resent your word, but to repent and turn to you and to receive forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Amen. Let's go ahead and stand for a closing song and benediction. In this last song, we're going to sing, Jesus, I'm a cross, I've taken.